Last week, we examined James 1, 1 through 4, and those verses, I think, are a lot like an existential exploration in how trials work. So it's a lot more reflective. James there feels very compassionate and understanding, but when we get to verses 5 through 8, it seems like James changes his tone a little bit. He shifts from this exploration of how trials work to giving us a command and a caution. So this morning, there are really just two simple points to the sermon. There's a command and a caution. The command is that we ought to request wisdom from God, and the caution is that we ought to receive that wisdom wholeheartedly with full commitment to it. So point number one, we must request God's wisdom to navigate our trials. Verse five, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to him. So James here describes a hypothetical situation where someone lacks wisdom, but this hypothetical situation is more stereotypical of all of us, isn't it? How many of us would say that we're a person who doesn't lack wisdom? We're facing trials and hardship and we don't need wisdom. Well, we shouldn't say that if we are saying that. James here points out that when we're facing trials, we need wisdom. Every one of us needs wisdom. We need wisdom and endurance. But he's shown us that endurance is somewhat self-generating. It kind of just happens as we're stuck in the trial when we're stuck in a difficult circumstance. Wisdom, on the other hand, has to come from the outside. It doesn't just appear. It's something that we need. It comes from outside of us. So where endurance grows from the ground up, endurance, sorry, let me rephrase that. That would be the opposite of what I'm saying. Endurance grows from the ground up as we experience a trial, but wisdom comes from the top down. We have to request it. So where does wisdom come from? Well, James makes it quite clear that wisdom comes from God. At least the right kind of wisdom comes from God. So for that reason, if we're lacking wisdom, we need to request wisdom from God. God is the one who gives the wisdom. He's the one who dispenses it. Ultimately, he's the source of true wisdom. So we need to request it directly from him. There's no middleman that we need. We can go directly to God. But have you ever had the experience of asking someone for something only to be made fun of because of your request? Or perhaps to be snubbed and refused to have your request granted? So have you ever gone to your boss or your coworker and asked them about something and they criticize you for not already knowing? Or have you ever asked your brother or your sister about something and they made fun of you because you didn't know it already? Well, God is not like that at all. God does not shame or disgrace the person who asks for wisdom. He doesn't laugh at you. He doesn't make fun of you. As one person put it, God does not belittle our stupidity. He welcomes it. He gives generously and ungrudgingly. He does it without hesitation or reservation. He does it without faulting the petitioner for asking, without condescension, and without reprimand. God 
is a good and giving God. He delights in giving us wisdom, and he gives it to anyone who will ask for it. All we have to do is ask. There's a promise embedded in this command. It's that the one who asks will receive it. If you ask God for wisdom, you're virtually guaranteed to receive it. Now, the appropriate response to this verse is painfully obvious. What should we do in response? We ought to ask God for wisdom. But that's also painfully difficult. Because if you're like me, you tend to rely on your own intuitions and your own intelligence rather than pursuing wisdom from God. This really is a kind of pride that crops up in all of our lives when we fail to, refuse to, or just forget to ask God for wisdom. So this instruction is convicting and encouraging. It's convicting because, once again, if you're like me, a brief reflection on my mode of operating reveals surprisingly infrequent appeals to God for wisdom. It's not that I don't want God's wisdom. It's not that I'm trying to rebel against God's wisdom. It's just that I often don't even think to ask for God's wisdom. It's not that I want to be resistant to it or to turn down a gift that's on offer. It's just that asking for anything is so foreign to my way of life. And I think that's so foreign to the way of life for anyone who's living in America. We'd rather forge our own way forward, exercise a spirit of ingenuity in keeping with this American way of life that's wrapped up in individualism and this gritty self-sustainability. We don't want to ask anyone for anything. And if anyone offers something to us, we have the language of the Minnesota nice individual that says, I'm fine, thank you, and we move on. So when God offers us wisdom, we often tend to reject it. So that's convicting. But what's encouraging is the way that James talks about the God who offers wisdom to us. So what happens for someone like me and perhaps someone like you who has so often failed to ask God for wisdom and failed to receive the wisdom he offers? Well, James assures us that there's no shame in continuing to ask God for wisdom when you failed to do it in the past. God delights in giving you wisdom. He doesn't give you a reprimand. He doesn't snobbishly retort that you failed to ask him so many times, you've lived so unwisely that you've made your bed, so now it's time to lie in it. He doesn't reply with a holy, I told you so. He doesn't ridicule you. He doesn't reprimand you. He just gives. So there's no shame in asking There's no shame because of our past failures. God invites you still to come and ask for wisdom for all of life. That's the encouraging part of what James is saying, even as it's convicting. Now, we should pause, though, to recognize the logic behind what James is saying. James is suggesting that we're lacking wisdom, and it's only going to be found external to ourselves. We aren't going to find wisdom by looking inside. Wisdom is not discovered on the path to finding ourselves. 
It's not part of the journey of self-discovery. It's not something that we can access by becoming more in tune with who we truly are. Wisdom is something that is granted from the outside. It has to be received. It can't just be conjured up on our own. That idea probably is not very popular in our modern age, and it goes against the grain of everything else that we think about, everything else we look inside for. We try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We try to be the answers to our own problems. But James is quite clear that wisdom has to come from outside, and God ultimately is the source that the wisdom has to come from. Now, there's a logic that James is operating on that's bigger than just the logic of receiving wisdom from the outside. James is trying to show us that ultimately, the solutions to our problems of who we are, both in our human brokenness and in our sinfulness, the answer to that problem must come from the outside. We're not the solution to that problem, and we never can be. As hard as we try to be the solution to our sin problem, to our brokenness problem, we can never do it. We'll only become more sinful and more broken. Goodness, wisdom, righteousness does not originate inside of us. We need an external answer. And ultimately, the external answer is found in the person of Jesus, who is the perfect wisdom of God, who meets us and offers us that wisdom in himself. So we are called on to give up on our pursuit of wisdom by looking inside ourselves. We're called on to give up trying to find the answer for our brokenness from the inside. We have to look external to ourselves. And this really is the message of Christianity. It's a message of the gospel that we're offered life and hope and healing, but it comes from outside of ourselves. So we have to give up on going our own way and follow in the way of Jesus. Even if the way of Jesus initially doesn't look that pleasant. In fact, the gospel accounts the accounts of the gospel message, are filled with scenarios where individuals go to Jesus and ask him to heal what is hurting, to fill up what is empty, to fix what is broken. And when Jesus gives them a way forward, they reject it. And they walk away sorrowful because they are not willing to follow after Jesus. But what it means to be a Christian What it means to follow Jesus is to give up on our own answers and our own solutions and to wholeheartedly in faith accept Jesus' answers and solutions and to follow after him. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. So whether you've identified as a Christian or not, that's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Some of us identify as Christians but we're doing nothing to follow Jesus. Some of us don't know what it means to be a Christian, but we've started to grab onto the fact that Jesus has something to offer and we've taken steps towards him. I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, if you have questions about what it means for you to continue following after Jesus, we would love to talk with you. This is what we're all about here. We want to show you what it looks like to follow after Jesus for all of life because he has answers on the outside that we'll never come up with on our own. So James gives us a command. Request wisdom from God. We need wisdom from God to navigate our trials. 
But then he gives us a caution. The caution is that we must receive God's wisdom wholeheartedly, with complete commitment, in faith. This is what he says starting in verse 6. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. We need to unpack this a little bit because the language is somewhat foreign to us. And sometimes when we hear these words of faith and doubt, we start to fill them with meaning that James might not intend. Uh, The biblical authors can use the same terms in different ways. We have to examine the context that they're found in to know what they mean. And if we start to fill in these terms with the way that perhaps Paul uses them, we might actually misunderstand what James is saying. So we need to think about this instruction to ask in faith without doubting. A provisional reading of this caution might suggest that if someone truly wants wisdom from God, they must actually have faith that God even exists. They can't be an atheist who asks God for wisdom. Or perhaps James is even combating a wrong notion that we can exercise power over God. That if we say, God, give us wisdom, God must do whatever we say, treating Christianity as if it's some kind of magic. Or perhaps James is saying, if you are going to get wisdom from God, not only do you need to believe that God exists, but you need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You need to become a follower of Christ, and then you can receive wisdom from God. Well, there might be something to each of these readings. I don't think that's what James is getting at. I think these are a little bit off track. So let's hear the terms faith and doubt, and later wisdom, in the context of James's letter. So ask in faith. I want to suggest that James uses this term faith essentially as a synonym with the word commitment or allegiance, rather than initial belief in God or in Jesus as the Messiah. When James is talking about faith, he's almost exclusively talking about faith in action, faithfulness, commitment to the way of the Lord. So it has less to do with faith in particular propositions or facts and more to do with faithfulness, a way of life. He spends a significant time talking about this later in the letter. He cares less about a propositional faith and more about a lived-out kind of faith, a life that's lived in allegiance to Jesus. So in our modern terminology, I think that we could rephrase what James is saying in this way. He's saying that a person asking for wisdom should ask for it in good faith. We use that phrase, in good faith, to describe an act that takes place without ulterior motives— without anything hidden under the table, and without divided interests. We use the phrase, in good faith, to describe a certain kind of commitment. Like when two parties enter into negotiations, when they do so in good faith, they're coming to the table with honesty, with pure motives, with commitment to finding resolution. So acting in good faith, And asking in good faith requires that our faith take shape in every aspect of our life, including an unwavering commitment to God and the kind of wisdom that he gives. So when a Christian asks God for wisdom in good faith, 
that person is asking for wisdom with a commitment to receive it and to act upon it, not to take it and consider it as an option for life, but as the option for life, a commitment to walk in the way of wisdom. So he further qualifies it by saying that we ought to request wisdom in faith without doubting. So if faith is a wholehearted commitment that expresses itself in action, which means that a person who asks for wisdom from God in faith does so with complete commitment to whatever he gives, what does it mean for a person to doubt? This is what it means. It means that you're not divided in that commitment at all. That there is no division in your reception of the wisdom. It's a commitment to belief that God is good and that what God will give you in the wisdom is also good. It's this kind of doubt that James will address in verse 13, where there's an individual who hypothetically is saying that God is not good, and through trials trying to tempt them to sin. Well, James says that God is good, and that he's the giver of all good gifts. That's the next thing that he says. And the ultimate gift that James speaks of here is the gift of wisdom. So in a sense, the doubt that James references is the kind of doubt that targets God's goodness, that is not completely sure that God is good or gives good wisdom. It's the kind of person who's going through a trial and recognizes that they need wisdom in their trial, and they even make a request to God for wisdom. But at the very same time that they're asking God for wisdom, they're not quite sure that God has their best intentions in mind. They're not quite certain that God is really that good or that his wisdom can really be relied on. So better not fully commit to the wisdom that God gives or his way of living. Instead, we'll give God's way the good old college try, and if it doesn't get us what we want, well, we can go somewhere else for wisdom. That's not the way that we ought to ask for wisdom. James wants to ask, wants us to ask for wisdom without any divided interest in good faith. It's the kind of asking that puts all of your eggs into one basket, the kind that isn't looking for a second opinion or hunting for a different source of wisdom. It's the kind of asking that doesn't have a plan B. It's the kind of asking that doesn't come with a go bag as soon as things get a little bit dicey when you start doing things God's way. It's a commitment that's there for the long haul, rain or shine. That's what James is urging us on to. So request wisdom from God in faith without doubting. The person who doubts should not think that they'll get anything from the Lord. Now, when you hear that phrase, that the person who asks doubting shouldn't think that he's going to receive anything from God, you, you might respond cynically and say, well, what's God's problem? Why won't God give wisdom to people who doubt? I mean, if someone asks me for advice, I don't require that they commit to my advice before they even hear it. I'll give it to them and they can take it or leave it, but I'm not going to withhold something good from them. So why would God withhold something good from the person who's struggling with commitment, who's doubting? I don't think that's how we should hear this line. If we pay careful attention to the text, we start to see that 
it's not that God's refusing to offer wisdom or to give wisdom. It's instead that the doubter is simply incapable of receiving the wisdom. So it's not as if the person hasn't qualified, therefore God will refuse their application for wisdom. Instead, they're not the kind of person who can accept the wisdom that's given. The person who fails to commit to God's wisdom is like the person in Proverbs 1 who stands within shouting range of lady wisdom but refuses to respond to it. I think we can illustrate it in this way. The athlete who shows up to practice, willing to follow instructions for every drill, who's committed to the advice of his coach, who has undivided interest when they're at practice, that kind of person can expect to receive a lot from practice. But the athlete who shows up to practice, unwilling to go through every drill, who pulls out as soon as practice gets hard, who doesn't want to listen to the coach's instructions, and as soon as their phone buzzes on the side of the court, checks it out and stops paying attention, that person should not expect that they'll receive anything from practice. It's not that the practice has nothing to offer. It's not that the coach is no longer making themselves available. It's that this athlete is so uncommitted that they'll have nothing to show for as a result of the practice. He's put the coach in the back seat and taken over the driver's seat. He's put the instructions on the back burner, and the practice can't do anything for him. I think this is more of what James is communicating. God is not going to force himself or his wisdom on anyone. He gives out wisdom in relationship to people, So so people who are not committed to God and relating to him will naturally be unable to receive his wisdom. So we could say that you can't get God's wisdom without also getting God. They're a package deal. So if we want wisdom, we also need to want God. We can't get one and not the other. James illustrates it in this way. He says, for the doubter, verse 6, is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. The doubter is coming to God, but he's not really going anywhere. He's not making any forward progress. He's like a wind-whipped wave of the sea that moves forward and then immediately flies back, never reaching at a destination and always folding in on itself. So it's not so much that God has made his wisdom unavailable to that person. It's that the person has made themselves unavailable to God's wisdom. So James concludes this caution with an aphorism, with a pithy saying. Aphorisms are those short statements that pack a world of meaning into one sentence. Sometimes they get tired out, but somehow they still have a way of explaining the world to us. They still have a way of giving us direction. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Or practice what you preach. Or don't count your chickens before they hatch. All of these are tired out aphorisms, but they still pack a lot of meaning. Well, James adds one to the list, or perhaps all these come after James. Translating the aphorism is difficult, and if you examine 10 English translations, you'll see 10 different ways of saying it. But I like the way that the King James Version says it. The King James Version says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. A divided person doesn't have a leg to stand on, and an uncommitted person isn't going anywhere. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That divided person 
wouldn't know what to do with God's wisdom if he got it. Because he'd be living two separate lives. One committed to God and God's ways, and one committed to his own desires. And eventually that divided commitment would lead to an instability that will never last. If you want a good example of this, we recently came across it in the group of us who are reading through the Bible in a year on on this Every Day with Jesus plan. We read of King Solomon in 1 Kings 13 through 11. King Solomon appealed to God for a wise and understanding heart, and God gave him a wise and understanding heart. And very initially, it seemed like all was going well. Solomon seemed committed to that wisdom and walking in God's ways. But we soon find out that Solomon did not listen to the caution that came with the gift of wisdom. God told Solomon that in order to remain on the throne, in order to pursue in the wise way of life, he needed to continue in the way of God, in faithfulness to him. But Solomon's commitment to God ran out, and so did his wisdom. And in the end, Solomon gave his heart over to false gods. He was not wholeheartedly, single-mindedly committed to the Lord. He was a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's what James is cautioning us against. Don't be the kind of person who has God's wisdom on, on offer, but refuses to commit to it. So we might ask then, why would anyone refuse to commit wholeheartedly to God's wisdom? Why would anyone in their right mind become an unstable, divided person? I think the short answer probably is that anyone in their right mind wouldn't avoid God's wisdom or become divided in their interests. But unfortunately, most of us are not in our right minds most of the time, so we're double-minded people quite often. So we need this caution. But I think that there are two primary reasons that we might fail to commit ourselves to God's wisdom. First, because of the way that God's wisdom works. And second, because of what God's wisdom actually is. So I want to suggest that we fail to commit ourselves to God's wisdom because of the way it works. Wisdom, like faith, has to be put into action. Wisdom, like endurance, must not be abandoned prematurely. Wisdom, then, is not a collection of facts that we can grab onto, but it is instead a way of life. God does not give us the kind of wisdom that can be taken bit by bit and integrated into parts of our lives wherever we would like God's wisdom to be. Instead, we're supposed to enter into wisdom and to walk in its way. We are not able to control it and exercise power over it. Instead, we are to allow God's wisdom to exercise its power over us. And that requires undivided devotion and wholehearted commitment. So I think that's one reason why we abandon the way of wisdom. But second, I think we fail to commit ourselves to God's wisdom because of what it actually is. Now, if you like definitions, you've probably been a bit frustrated that up until this point, I haven't even attempted to define what wisdom is. And in fact, if you are, please be frustrated at James as well, because he doesn't define it yet either. In fact, he never actually gives us a straightforward definition, but halfway through his letter, he describes what wisdom is. In chapter 3, 
James lists what wisdom is, and it's surprising what it isn't. If we read that we need to ask God for wisdom in our time of trial, and really in all of life, we might be thinking that James is saying, whenever you face a decision, ask God what decision you should make, and then he will tell you what decision you should make, and life will be fine and hunky-dory because of it. But that's not what James is talking about when he refers to wisdom. The wisdom to which he refers is wisdom that's compared or distinguished between wisdom from above and wisdom from below. Wisdom from below, he says, is defined by our own desires, envy, evil ambition that's in our heart. But wisdom from above, on the other hand, is received in faith, and it's quite different. It's pure, peace-loving, gentle, compliant or teachable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense, producing the fruit of righteousness. So when we're asking God for wisdom as we navigate our trials, we aren't so much asking God for the right decision to make in a particular moment, but we're asking him to make us the right kind of person while making those decisions. God's wisdom, then, is not concerned so much with developing people who make savvy decisions or who know certain things, but with developing a certain kind of person, a kind of person who receives God's wisdom and is then transformed by it. I think it's significant that if we compare what James says here with Paul's writing about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, What James says is wisdom is virtually identical to what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, which emphasizes that these things need to come from outside of us, that they're a work of God, and ultimately they're a way of life. We start to see that God is not concerned with downloading decision hardware into our brains, treating us like robots, but giving us a way of being a way of living in this world that will ultimately lead us in the way of Christ. So when we ask for wisdom, one commentator says this is essentially what we're doing. When we ask for wisdom, we're essentially asking for an ability to endure with the ethic of Jesus. When we ask God for wisdom during our time of trial, we're essentially asking God to give us endurance that allows us to reflect Jesus as we navigate that trial. And we'll talk more about what that means when we hit that text. And we'll talk more about the counterintuitive nature of God's wisdom next week. But I want to spend a few moments here considering why it is that we so often marginalize God's wisdom why we so often reject it, and what that tends to look like in the life of Christians, but perhaps even more significantly in the life of collections of Christians, in church denominations and Christian movements. So for a few moments, I want to talk about the marginalization of biblical wisdom. Why is it that we reject biblical wisdom, and what does that look like? Now, I don't want to overstate something, or suggest that this is true in all places. But I think that on the whole, conservative Christianity 
evidences a deficiency in biblical wisdom, in moral skill and virtue, these things get pushed to the sidelines. First, I want to suggest that we, some of us, some churches, some denominations, have elevated knowledge of doctrine over wisdom as moral skill. So there's been an emphasis on knowledge, knowing particular things, and there's been a de-emphasis on wisdom, moral skill, virtue. Within our conservative world, about 30 years ago, there was something that's been labeled the conservative resurgence, where there was a reclaiming of conservative doctrine in churches and seminaries, particularly in the Southern Baptist world, but really in the evangelical movement as a whole. And in that conservative resurgence, there was a resurgence of conservative doctrine and truth, conservative propositions, conservative understanding of what the Bible teaches. And I think that, in all likelihood, that conservative resurgence was needed. There was a need to emphasize doctrine. But I think what happened over the intervening years is that the life-giving doctrine was reshaped to become simply a battleground of ideas. Apologetics and evangelism became a business where knowledge was the primary thing, but wise moral living was pushed to the margin. And whatever fracturing there was in conservative evangelicalism over doctrine was overshadowed by a single-minded commitment to moral skill and right living. This is why there could be apologists who defend the faith while committing sexual sin on the same day. This is why we can defend the right doctrine and represent nothing of the love and virtue of Christ along the way. It's because moral skill, wisdom, has been pushed to the margins. What's true for a movement is also often true for the individuals who are part of it. And we start to detect these things in our churches when we debate over different points of understanding of doctrine in a way that jettisons wisdom and the list of virtues that accompany it. I would suggest that when we start to see ourselves doing that, and I confess that I have been guilty of that, when we start to see it, we can be certain that in Pauline terms, we do not yet know as we ought to know. We don't know with wisdom, even if we know with understanding. So I think the elevation of knowledge of doctrine over wisdom is moral skill is one of the ways that we've pushed wisdom to the sideline but then second, I want to suggest that there's this belief that biblical wisdom is not sufficient for the uniqueness of the moment we're in. This is a problem. I think each one of us naturally has the inclination to think that our particular situation is abnormal, special, unique, and therefore, because of the uniqueness of what we're experiencing, we're excused from the call of biblical wisdom. We start to believe that the situation we're facing is so special that God's directives just don't work. They're not fitting. So we need to take over. We need to step in. We need to take charge. I think at a larger level, at least in American Christianity, 
Christians have been especially susceptible to this wrong way of thinking. Not just in terms of what happens within the church, but also in the way that the church engages with political and societal life. So here I simply want to put out a warning. Both on a personal level to each of us and at a larger church level. If you start to feel that your situation is so unique and therefore you have permission to deviate from walking in the way of wisdom, then you are misunderstanding what James is teaching and you're on course to be an unstable person. Divided. We need to catch on to the fact that James is giving this instruction in the context of trial and hardship and unique situations. So what he's saying is not true just for the normal experience of life. It's also true for the difficult experiences of life. Those situations do not exempt us from walking in the way of wisdom as James has defined it. So whether your unique situation revolves around navigating response to a pandemic or political situations, whether it has to do with a messy situation in your job or with difficulty with your children or with your spouse or disagreements with other Christians or financial hardships or whatever the case might be, that situation does not exempt you or free you from biblical wisdom. There's not freedom there. There's only captivity to the problems we bring to the table. There's only instability. Third, I want to suggest that the belief that obtaining good outcomes justifies deviating from the way of wisdom has caused Christians to push biblical wisdom to the margins. What I'm trying to say here is this, is that many Christians have become captivated with attaining certain outcomes and they're willing to dispense with biblical wisdom in order to get it. If biblical wisdom looks like a roadblock to our desired outcomes, we often just get rid of biblical wisdom altogether. Now, there's a more technical, philosophical way of looking at this, and it's, I, I won't go into it too much, but there's an ethical system called consequentialism, and the whole purpose of that system is to say something is ethical if it results in a good outcome. If the, if the consequences of the, outcome, outcome, or consequences of the out, action are good, then it's virtuous to go that route. Well, I think many Christians have taken this way of thinking and applied it to every part of life, and they start to say, we want these good aims, but we're not going to get it because there are people who are opposing us. Therefore, we can dispense with biblical wisdom and we can fight fire with fire. We can, in a sense, stoop to that level. Well, very often, we can take something good and make it ultimate. And that's what the biblical authors talk about as idolatry. When we take something good, a good thing, and we make it the main thing. And if we start doing that and make good outcomes the main thing, and we're willing to depart from the way of wisdom in order to get there, then once again, we're pursuing double-minded living, instability. We're not walking in the way of the Lord, even though we can justify it and convince ourselves that because we're pursuing something good, that we must be doing what God wants. 
So whether it's in getting your kids to behave in the way you want them to, whether it's getting a church to look like the way that we want it, we want it to look, whether it's advancing biblical morals in society, we are never given permission to depart from biblical wisdom to get the job done. I think embedded in this call to wisdom in all of life is a call to faith, a call to believe that God might be doing something behind the scenes even when our objectives are not met, when our agenda is not accomplished, God is still at work. It's a call to view the world in the way that God shows us. It's a call to say that very often victory comes through what looks like defeat. Flourishing comes through what looks like hardship. Conquering comes through initial suffering. Resurrection comes through death. We're called to faith that God's way of wisdom is actually good. So therefore, we can dispense with these wrong ways of thinking that marginalize biblical wisdom. This is true for Christianity at large. It's true for us as a church. It's true for us as individuals. So we can step forward in faith, believing that God delights in giving wisdom to anyone who asks for it. We have to receive that caution. We need to receive it wholeheartedly, believing in the goodness of God and the goodness of his wisdom. That's the way that we're called to walk. So let's pray that God would give us that faith, that endurance, and he would grant us that wisdom. Father, we confess that very often we have chosen to marginalize your wisdom, to reject your way of walking in this world, to ask for it without being fully committed to it. Would you make us single-minded individuals who pursue your ways and your wisdom, who endure with the ethic of Jesus? In Christ we pray. Amen.